Good evening. And I'm supposed to preach after that by the choir? I don't know why you guys quit so quick. I was just starting to find the rhythm about the time you quit. But I'm really glad to be with you. And I believe every person here tonight, the Lord had a hand in him being here. He brought us out. He put us together. And we're going to trust him to speak to us. We go to Luke tonight. We've been to Mark. We've been to John. And now we're going to Luke. Chapter 18. Tonight we're going to think about two men who were together in time, but apart for all eternity. Together in time and apart for eternity. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke 18, 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this evening we come again into your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we give thanks that we can meet in his name, and that we can know his presence in our midst. And we want to say to you, Lord, like the two disciples on the Emmaus Road said that evening, as you walked with them, they said, Lord, stay with us, abide with us. Stay with us tonight, Lord. Speak to us through your word. You know exactly what to give to the heart of each person here tonight. You know the ones who need encouragement. You know the ones who need stimulation or hope. And you know the ones who need to be saved. And so we ask you to work. And to show it to us, we know you're here present. For you promise in your word where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. We know you're here, but we want to see you working. And we ask that you be glorified in this meeting tonight. And that each person here will be able to say, tonight I met with Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Proud people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Heaven is that unique and exclusive society into which only those who are unworthy are admitted. The only way you can qualify to go to heaven is to not deserve it. And that's what we were talking about that other night, wasn't it? When we talked about Alice in Wonderland. Poor Alice trying to get in that little door. And she was too big. And we run right into the same problem Tonight, maybe I should have saved Alice for tonight, because the more I think about the Pharisee and the publican, I think there's a man who was too big to get in, the Pharisee. This is a parable, says in verse 9, he spake this parable. But in this parable, the Lord's parables, a lot of times people argue and and, uh, disagree about what they mean. We don't have to worry about that because this is one of those parables in which the Lord tells us right at the beginning, the scripture tells us why he gave the parable and what the point of the parable is. So we don't have to worry or debate about that. We just look. Verse 9 tells us, He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. 
The Lord now is going to teach us through this parable about these two men the importance of humility about ourselves and the importance of having a sense of need, a sense of personal need. Two men went to the temple to pray and one of them didn't have a need and the other one did. And those two men in that temple that day were no further apart than you and I are in here tonight. And yet they are now separated by eternity. When they walked into the temple, they were the same before God. They were in the same spiritual condition. Both of them needed to be forgiven and saved. And when they walked out of the temple, one of them was and one of them wasn't. The Lord says it in verse 14. I tell you, this man, not these men. Pay attention to the wording of scripture. I tell you, this man went down to his house, to his house justified rather or instead of the other. One and not the other. Together in time, but apart for eternity. And here we have the parable explained in the very beginning. The Lord doesn't have to wait to the end to draw a moral or a lesson from it. He tells us right in the beginning what the problem is. What the problem is in this parable and what the problem is in this room tonight. Because when this meeting is over tonight, maybe the Lord will say in heaven, two men went to the Bible study on Wednesday evening. Or a man and a woman, a brother and a sister, two sisters, two brothers, two friends, two neighbors, a father and son, a mother and son, a mother and daughter. Two people went to the chapel and one of them, when they walked out the door, one of them was saved. One of them had eternal life. One of them was born again and the other one wasn't. Now, I don't know who that's going to be. God knows and you know. Or if you don't know, you'll soon find out from Luke chapter 18 what the condition of your heart is and what your spiritual need is. God knows. And you will know. And then you will have to decide. Because that decision God will not make. He calls upon you to make it. The Pharisee and the publican. Christ is concerned about people who trust in themselves. He says in verse 9, He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. Since when is the human being the object of faith? They trusted in themselves. You know what that's like? Anybody here do any sailing? Anybody here have a boat? What happens if when you're out on the place where you want to stop, where you want to stop the boat, you take the anchor and you throw it in the back of the boat? How's that going to help you? And that's exactly what happens to a person who trusts in himself. He's throwing his anchor the anchor of his eternal soul, he's throwing it in the back of his own boat. He trusted in himself. We live in a world today that teaches people, that encourages people to trust in themselves. To look within to find the answer. To look within to find the strength. Self-help and self-improvement and self-this and self-that. And a thousand, we call them, we used to call them, back in the old days, the hyphenated sins. Self-something. Self-love, self-importance, self-esteem. Come on up here, Dean. (laughs) We're going to do this as a team. He's right. The Lord's concerned about it. The Lord spoke the parable because he's concerned 
about people who trust in themselves. And because the Lord is concerned about it, I'm concerned about it. But now as I'm just a Western Union boy. I, I didn't write this telegraph. I didn't write this message. I'm just delivering it. This is what the Lord said. Certain people trust in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Uh, putting it in our language, we would say they thought that they were better than other people. Now, maybe they didn't think they were the best there was, but they certainly weren't the worst. And this is the danger of the human heart looking around and finding someone worse than you are. I had a, uh, an aunt by marriage who was a, she, she isn't anymore. She lost a lot of weight, but there was a period of time there where she was quite a large woman. And she had no concern about it at all in particular, except to look around as she went through life and her job and, and her off time. And if you were with her, you would see her looking at people, and every once in a while she would say, 278. And then a few days later you'd see her again, and she'd see something or someone, and she'd say, 285. And this number was always going up. And my wife nudged me and she said, you, you know what she's doing? She's counting all the people she's seen who are bigger than she is. 278, 200 and whatever. You know, that's what we do spiritually. We look around and we say, we probably don't have the number, but we say, uh-huh, there goes another one. I'm not that bad. Now, there's something I wouldn't do. Now, there's something I haven't done. Not in my wildest imagination would I ever think of doing that. I mean, I, I have my faults, we say, with false humility. I have my faults. We used to have a, when I was a flight instructor, we had a, our assistant flight commander had a big poster over his desk where the students had to come and sit in front of him and uh, be counseled about their flying, the student pilots. And this big poster he had right over his desk was a rhinoceros. Staring, and just at the point of charging, he lowered his head, and he was just about to charge. In the bottom of the poster, it said, I may have my faults, but being wrong is not one of them. <laughs> and that's what the students had to look at all the time. See, I may have my faults, you say, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I don't do those things. The Lord's concerned about that. He gave the parable because he's concerned about people who don't have a proper estimate of themselves. They don't have a proper view of themselves. They don't analyze themselves and come to a correct conclusion. They're deceived. And you know, you have two choices. You can either be delivered from that deception now, or you'd be delivered from it when you stand before God. But then it'll be too late to do anything about it. Be too late then. So you have two choices. Give in now or give in later. Accept the true, the divine, the perfect, perfectly correct estimate, evaluation of you from the mouth of God. Or go on deceiving yourself and thinking, That you're not such a bad person. If you had any idea 
if you had any idea of what you're like before God. See, we dress it up and we know how to behave. But God looks at the heart. And secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God knows all about it. God judges the secrets of men, Romans chapter 2 says. He knows. And he wants to deliver us from making the mistake that this poor Pharisee made here this night. It says, two men went into the temple to pray. Verse 10. And we're going to come to the two men, but we just want to think about what they're doing here. These men had a good idea. They did the right thing. Since the days of uh, 1 Kings 8, when the temple was built, when Solomon had the temple built, and, and he dedicated the temple there in front of all the people, and, and uh, the glory of God came and filled the temple, and fire fell on the altar. And those, since those days, from that time in 1 Kings 8 forward, the temple of God had been called a house of prayer. And when the Lord Jesus came, And he cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of his public ministry and once again at the end of his public ministry. What did he say? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The Lord Jesus said the temple was a house of prayer. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, he gave all these different, go read 1 Kings 8 and see, all the different cases he gave. Where he said, now if this happens and your people come and pray, if this happens and and this person comes and prays to you in the temple, hear him in heaven and answer his prayer. That was the place. It was called a house of prayer. So these men are doing the right thing. They're not doing anything wrong here. They're coming to pray. But let me just tell you this. Praying, hear me now, praying doesn't get anybody into heaven. Praying doesn't change our relationship with God necessarily. Because they both prayed. But sometimes when we pray, we get lost in our prayers. Sometimes when we pray, we don't get down to the real nitty gritty with God. We pray like a little boy who's a friend of a dear man who's now in heaven. He was like a father in the faith to me in many ways. He taught his children to pray when they were little. Teach me that I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. He taught them to pray that every night. They put on their pajamas, brush their teeth, and they go kneel by the bed and they would pray. There were three of them. And one of them didn't like to pray it. And so when it was his turn to pray, he would say, Dear Lord, thank you for this day and for my friends and for my family and this and that and the other. And he would kind of go all around and pretty soon his father would reach over and tap him or nudge him and he'd say, Go on. I'm not going to say his name because I'm afraid some of you might know him. He would say, he'd say, Go on. And then you'd hear this sigh and he would take a deep breath and he'd say, Teach me that I'm a sinner of Jesus, die for amen. Spit it out like bad medicine. Get it out of his mouth as quick as he could. One day he finally learned it. See. There's praying and then there's praying. Some people when they pray, they congratulate themselves. Some people when they pray, they preach sermons. 
and they try to let everyone know that they can preach. And that's the way they get it in. And some people, when they pray, they knock another brother or a sister over the throne of grace. Oof. Deliver us from the Judas in our midst. Who's he talking about now? (laughs) Some people, when they pray, they try to settle arguments. And teach us that, and then they're off on their whatever it is. They're not really asking God anything except to be quiet while they make the point. That's not praying. Some people, when they pray, they worry. They don't trust. Some people, when they pray, they express self-pity. And some people, when they pray, they seek, they sincerely seek help that only God can give them. And that's a good reason to pray. So here they are, two men. They're in the right place. They didn't go to the discotheque. They're in the temple. They didn't stay home and watch television. They didn't have that in those days. I'm sure they had something to do. They could have done it. But they went to the temple to pray. So in some sense, both of them knew that there was the place to go. And that was the thing to do. Two men. Two prayers. And two results. Not everybody who prays, I say again, goes to heaven. Not everybody. Two men went into the temple to pray. The one, a Pharisee. We already talked about the Pharisees the other night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. A Pharisee, and it says the other, a publican. Now that word other, this will just be a little 15 second lesson in Greek. In the language that the New Testament was written in, there are two words that are translated other. Alos and heteros. Alos, whenever that's translated other, it means of the same kind. Heteros, from where we get our word heterosexual, all the words that begin that way, it means of a different kind. And when they use heteros, here, he's saying... One man was a Pharisee, and the other was a different kind of man. Here they are, two extremes, just like we had last night. We had Nicodemus, and then we thought about that Gadarene demoniac. Two men who were similar only in the sense that they were both members of the human race. They lived in different places. Their lives were completely opposite one to another. But here we have them in the same place. Two men in the same place, talking supposedly to the same person, but who are completely different. Heteros, the other, a publican. So when you first look at it, and when you first think about it, and I'm sure the Jews in that day, they thought right away, well, if I had to be one of those two before the Lord got any further along in the parable, he would say, I'd rather be the Pharisee. That's what the Jew would have said. And see, you cheat. You cheaters. (laughs) Because we all know that word Pharisee, and Pharisee has a very negative connotation to us, doesn't it? You Pharisee, we say. Oh, he's a Pharisee. He doesn't mean it that way here. 
The publican was worse than the Pharisee. The publicans were the tax collectors. The publicans worked for the Roman Empire. They were Jews. And they sold themselves to the Roman Empire to collect the taxes based on what? Uh, were they, they were getting, you could say, a sort of a commission. Uh, whatever the traffic would bear, they charged. And they gave the Roman Empire whatever, let's say, the Roman Empire, uh, let's say, $10 a head, just to say a number. Well, so they would charge 20 a head, 10 in the pocket, and 10 to the Roman Empire. Everything they made over what the Romans asked for, they got to pocket. And the tax collectors were known to be extortioners and fraudulent and and people who cared nothing about their own countrymen. They were considered to be uh, traitors. They sold out their country. And they're working for these Gentile dogs who are living here, controlling our land. There was no one in the nation of Israel in the time of Christ who was more despised, who was more of a social outcast and looked down upon than a publican, a tax collector. So you see, now you have to, that's why I said we cheat. You know, we see Pharisee, or we've read the parable, and we know how it's going to turn out. So we choose, right, oh, I want to be the publican. But if you lived back then, you wouldn't have responded that way. If you had lived back then when the Lord gave those two, my bet is that you would have said, well, I hope I'm like the Pharisee. Because the Pharisees were the people who knew the law, the word of God, who they were the most conservative segment of Jewish society. They believed in the literal interpretation of scripture. The Pharisees' problem was they took it too far. They said they wanted to do what God said. And then they decided on the questions that that God didn't spell out exactly how it had to be carried out. They decided for society how it had to be carried out. A tenth of everything meant a tenth of the mint and a tenth of the oregano and a tenth of they went through all the spices and you had to give a tenth of this and a tenth of that. And when it said you shouldn't work on the Sabbath day, the Pharisees helped the society by saying, well, now that means, for example, you can't walk a distance of more than a certain uh, measure because that would be working. And they began to make all these lists of what was considered work and what wasn't considered work. Things that the scripture didn't do. They were happy to provide for society. But they were generally, we should be clear on this, they were generally looked up to and respected as people who believed in God and who believed in the afterlife, they believed in the resurrection, which the Sadducees, who happened to be the ruling party in the Sanhedrin of Israel at that time, did not believe. They were the progressives, the liberals, but the Pharisees were the conservatives. So you read this now, not through our eyes, but you think about verse 10 through Jewish eyes. You see it through Jewish eyes, and you think, that's probably what they would have chosen. They would have said, well, one of the two, my bets are on the Pharisee. Boy, are they in for a surprise. And a lot of other people too. Everyone here tonight is represented by one of those two people. One of those two men. Never mind that they're men. We're not talking about that. And we're not trying to be politically correct. They're two people. And one of them has a correct estimate of himself and the other one doesn't. 
And one of them finds help from God and the other one doesn't. And everyone here tonight is in one of those two groups. My friend, either you have a correct estimate, a correct view and analysis of yourself, your spiritual condition, your needs, your relationship with God tonight, or else you don't. And that's all there is to it. There's no three groups. There's no middle ground. And when we go out those two doors, you're going to be in one of those two groups. And I can't do a thing in the world about it except tell you from this passage how those two groups work out. And you need to find yourself. And that's been my prayer since I was on my knees in my room this afternoon praying that God would help each person here tonight to find himself, herself, to find out, to see clearly where he's at spiritually so as to know what to do. Two men. The Pharisee. Verses 11 and 12. And the publican in verses 13 and 14. Let's think about the Pharisee then for a few minutes. The Pharisee, he had his act together. He thought. He thought he knew who he was and how good he was. He went to the temple really to congratulate himself. He was that kind of a person who uh, never needs for other people to congratulate him because he's always giving himself a sore shoulder, patting himself on the back. (laughs) This is exactly the way this man lived. A man who was lost inside himself. He was lost in the little world of himself. He had no correct view of God. He had no understanding of the scripture that he professed to believe. And so he didn't know himself. It's a big shock for people like that to come to know themselves. People who live without any sense of need. They don't feel any urgency. They don't feel that they're in any crisis. They don't really feel there's anything seriously wrong. I feel for those kind of people. Because right around the corner in their life, a big surprise is waiting for them. And how do I know that? Because I've been there. I've been taken down. And the Lord has shown me. And everyone here tonight who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ can say the same thing. You know it. That there was a time in your life when you found out and when you had a sense of conviction about it. You felt and you understood it was like the scales fell off your eyes and suddenly you realized what a wicked heart you had. What an unclean person you were on the inside. And how you needed help from God. And like I said last night, I worry about these people that just kind of ease their way into the church. Like slime coming in under the door. You know, like fog coming in through the window. They just kind of drift in and settle down. And they're looking around and they're looking to, oh, i got to have a Bible like that. And they go out and buy a Bible like that. 
And they get the hymn book and they listen. They learn to sing the hymns. And they listen to how the people talk. And then pretty soon you hear them start saying brother and amen and all these kind of things. And isn't God good? And he is good. But they just don't know it. They got in and, and they evolved slowly, carefully, without any crisis, without any crunch point, without any humiliation, without any sense of urgency, without ever going through what the second man went through here. Somehow they became Christians. Uh, John Bunyan illustrates people like this in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read that, you really should. I'm sorry, I don't have any of them out there. Just, uh, you'll find them in the Christian bookstores. The two men that jumped over the wall. Christian, who was converted, he was born again, when he reached the cross. He was carrying this pack, this burden on his back. Ever since he found the book and started to read, he had this tremendous burden on his back. And he couldn't get it off. There was no way to get it off. His family wouldn't read the book, and they, none of them felt the burden, and they thought he was crazy. And so he left. He decided the city he was living in was a city of destruction, and he left. And he was looking for relief. He was looking to get away from that city, but he was also looking for relief for this burden. To make a long story short, he was pointed to a place where there's a hill called Calvary. And he stood at the foot of the cross, and he realized... That he, that one that had died on the cross had died for him. He did that for me, he said. You might say in the words of my friend, he found out that he was the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. And he said when he looked and beheld that scene, his burden suddenly was released. It fell off his back and it rolled down the hill, fell into a tomb and disappeared forever. He's Christian Because he went to Calvary. Because he had a burden and he lost it there at the cross, you see. But further down the road, as he's walking toward the heavenly city, these two men jump over the wall. I wish I could remember their names. Vane Talker was one of them. And I can't remember the other. Bunyan had quite a way with giving these people names. But anyway, they jumped over the wall, which means they never came through the cross. They never had a burden on their back. They just hopped over the wall and began to walk along with him and talk, talk, talk about spiritual things. Talk, 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 until he began to uh, press them to apply. How does that work out in your life? He began to apply it to them, and they became angry with him and left. Think how many times in life we find people walking along the road who jumped over the wall. They don't know anything about a burden. They don't know anything about a cross that they had to get to where they had to find relief. They don't know anything about Christ dying for them and what a relief it was to them to discover that. They just wanted to be in the club. They just wanted to be a member of the society. They figured these people are nice, clean people, clean living people, good company, honest folks have a noble character, or whatever he thought, whatever they thought, you know, and so they joined in. And they thought, if I do that, and if I do the best I can, surely God will 
except me. They jumped over the wall. No sense of need. And this is where this Pharisee is. Like I said, he came into the temple. And it says, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He didn't pray to God. Oh, he thought he did. But it says his prayer stayed in the temple. He prayed with himself. He's talking to himself. That's really what it means. He's praying to himself and saying things to himself in his prayer. A self-congratulatory prayer. You see, we talked about that a little bit last night. People who say, Our Father. They pray the Lord's Prayer. Let's recite the Lord's Prayer together. I had a priest tell me one time in Spain. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And he said, why not? I said, because we're both going to start off saying our Father, and you and I don't have the same Father. We're in different families. Because the only way to get into God's family is to be born again. See, that's the only way. So you can't say that. So he starts praying and he says, God, does that sound like a good way to start a prayer? That's all right. There's nothing wrong with that. Start a prayer saying, God, what's wrong with that? The only trouble was he didn't know God. So who's he talking to? He said, God, and God said, do what? Is he talking to me? You talking to me? He didn't know the Lord. God, he says. I thank you for having mercy on my soul. I thank you for salvation. I thank you for forgiving my sins. I thank you. No, no, no. He says, I thank you for me. Boy, today I tell you, I don't know if I'm going to step on somebody's toes or not. You just have to say, ouch. This is the way psychology teaches people to behave. Self-love and self-esteem. Appreciate yourself. Be confident in yourself. Second Timothy 3, 5 says, In the last days perilous times shall come, for men will be lovers of their own selves. And that doctrine that once was in the street and not in the churches has crept into the churches now. It's gotten in. And what 20... Or 30 years ago, and I can give it to you on paper, in proof, black and white, preachers used to talk about the sin of self-love and use the scripture to do it. And now in those places, different men are preaching and they're talking about the need for self-love. This man, this Pharisee, he loved himself. I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men are. And the Lord should have interrupted him right then and said, no, 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 I thank you. Let me thank you. With heavenly sarcasm and the angels laughing in the background. I don't think God mocks and the angels laugh at people like that, but I'm just trying to make a point. How ridiculous this sounds to God. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And that man didn't know God loved him. That man didn't think he was going to perish. That man didn't think he was in danger of passing into eternity without eternal life. 
You know, that's what perish means, P-E-R-I-S-H, to pass eternally ruined into Satan's habitation. And he didn't know that that was about to happen to him. And so he's going through life trying to be a better person, trying to do his best, and thinking that he was doing a pretty good job of it and that God was going to accept him. Now, I know there's nobody like that in our world today, and certainly nobody came here tonight who's ever done that, right? It's just this man. This is just a story Jesus told one time. It doesn't have anything to do with us, right? This is exactly our problem. He had a problem that the Lord uh, brought to light in the book of Romans. Let's go there for just a minute and look at it. Romans 10. Paul's writing to the Romans. Romans 10, verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. See, they had a problem. They were ignorant. Religiously zealous. But ignorant. They ignored God's righteousness. They didn't know anything about the righteousness of God. And so what were they doing? They were, it says they were going about trying to establish their own righteousness. Everybody trying to be good through doing the deeds of the law, keeping the Ten Commandments. I asked a man, I've asked more than one, but I'm thinking of one in particular. I asked a man one time if he kept the Ten Commandments, and he said yes. And I said, what are they? And he said, er, uh, um, uh, no swearing and, uh, and no lying and, um, and he couldn't get there. I said, boy, this is pretty serious, don't you think? We got, there's ten commandments that you say you're trying to keep so that you can have eternal life. And you can't even tell me just like that what they are. But your life depends on them, you say. See? Well, the Pharisee, coming back to the Pharisee, you see, he figured he kept those. That he wasn't like other men. He was a fine, upstanding, and maybe he knew Nicodemus. Well, I know this is just a parable, but let's play it out. And he thought about other people, but not in the right context. It says here, I thank thee, God, I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this publican, he said, as he's waving his arm and talking to God, and he turns around and he catches sight of the publican, who wasn't standing anywhere near him, it says, in verse uh, 13. It says, the publican standing afar off. So he was just probably just inside uh, the temple. And the Pharisee, well, he just came in strutting his stuff and walked right on up to the front. And he stood as close as he could. And he was proud of himself. There should be more people like me, he was probably thinking. 
That's what's wrong with the world. He had his own religion. Just like Romans 10. And I talk to people all over the world that have this. And every one of them thinks that it's a unique thing that they've learned to say. They say, I have my own religion. So you do? Well, you probably do. But let me just let you in on a little secret. God has his own heaven. See, it's his. And to get into heaven, you have to meet God on his terms. Men have been made. That's the oldest excuse in the book. I have my own religion. You know where that started? Cain and Abel. The Lord had told them what to do. And instead of bringing a sacrifice, a, a lamb like Abel did, Cain, he just said, no, I don't, I'm going to take some squash and some cucumbers and, and zucchini and tomatoes and melons or whatever. The best he cultivated, he's going to take that. I worked hard on these vegetables. And I'm going to bring them and put them up there. And the Lord's going to set the fruit of my labor. And God didn't accept it. He put it on the altar, and God didn't accept it. And God accepted what Abel did. A life was given in Abel's place. Something died. Blood was spilt. That animal died and was sacrificed. A substitute, see? Life for life. Not sweet peas or green peas and cabbage for life. And there's a lot of people... On this planet that are trying to give God fruits and vegetables of their works, their labors, the fruit of their labors. They're trying to do their best. And maybe they're even sincere. I don't doubt the sincerity of this man. And I don't doubt, and I'm not trying to make fun of the sincerity of people who say, I have my own religion. But this, I know, they're wrong. And they're just as wrong as the cults that they criticize. Every one of them that says he has his own religion has started his own cult. And he's the head of it. Or she's the head of it. He says, I fast twice in the week. Verse 12. I give tithes of all that I possess. And I'm sure he kept talking. But he, he doesn't end his prayer there. The scene cuts right then. The camera cuts over to the publican. And it just leaves the Pharisee there talking to himself in prayer in the temple. But he's got a big dose of vitamin I, doesn't he? <laughs> I thank thee that I am not as other men. I fast, I give of all that I possess. He's really got a bad case of it. He thinks of himself in this exalted way, and he thinks of other people. He looked down, there's the public, and he said, I'm not, for example, Lord, just so you understand me, I'm not like him. See? He saw other people that way. I think that I'm not as other men. I'm not like other people. And then he pulled in the public as a living illustration of what he was talking about. He was talking to God about other people who were worse off than him. But the publican, when he got his turn to talk, he talked to God about him being the only person and the worst person. He came into the temple to get help for himself, not to congratulate himself. 
or to put himself out there as an example to other people. You see, this is the basic difference. And this is, and I want us to be real clear on this, this is the fundamental error of the Pharisee. Verse 11, he thought he was not like other people. This is the fundamental error. And if you have that problem in your mind tonight, you think that you're different, you're a special case, and you're different, and you're not as bad as others, and you're better than, you're not as good as some, but you're not as bad as others, you're in the middle, in this ground, I'm, I thank you, Lord, that I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, and I would never do that. I have my faults, being wrong is not one of them, or whatever, doing this is not one of them. If you think like that, then you need to be disabused of that idea tonight. I wish it was in my power to take that idea, that that mistaken and deadly idea away from you. But I can't do it. You have to reject it. It's a lie. You're just like everybody else. You're just like everybody else before God. God's not looking at how we dress and how tall and our physical size and our talents and all that. He's looking at our spiritual condition. What it's like, you see. Let's go look at it in Romans. Romans chapter 3. And let's let the scriptures answer this Pharisee. He said he was not like other men. And if you think that way, we had a neighbor in Spain, they used to come over to our house, and she was very devout. She went to Mass, confession and Mass several times a week. She confessed to a Jesuit priest, and, and she was involved in all kinds of um, good works, uh, charitable societies, and those kind of things. And uh, she'd come and, and sit with us in our home. We would go to visit her. She called our children her American grandchildren. Real sweet lady. She just didn't have a clue about spiritual things. And we had more than one friendly discussion. Uh, sometimes it got a little tense, but it calmed down about spiritual things at the table. She said, look, Carlos, she calls me. I'm not, there, there are good people, really good people like the saints. And then there are really bad people. And then there are people like me. She says, I'm not as good as... I know that, but I'm not as bad as those either, see. She had the world divided up into three categories. And we tried and tried to get her to see how God divides the world up. Not how I divide it, okay? If you have a problem with this, your problem is not with me. Remember, I didn't write this. I'm just delivering it. This is the message of God in Romans chapter 3. He says in verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and read carefully now, and all the world may become guilty before God. Now look it. You either agree with what God said there or you don't. This is not my philosophy. I'm not presenting to you my ideas in a doctrinaire fashion. Religion is not like art, that everyone can do it and express himself however he wants and uh, interpret it however he wants. It's science. It's precise. And here it is. God measures. God looks. God analyzes. And he tells us. And oh, how I wish and how I pray that we could all come to agree with God tonight. You don't have to agree with me. But you have to agree with God. I could be mistaken. But what I've told you is not what I think or my ideas or my philosophy. What I've told you is what the Bible says and God is not mistaken. See, he says all. All. There is none righteous and all the world guilty before God. It's so clear. What's in your heart is no different from what's in everybody else's heart. And given the right circumstances, you would be capable of committing any sin that the Bible mentions. Any sin. If you don't believe that, you don't know yourself. Any sin. Given the right circumstances... Put into the situation the right way, you would be capable of committing any sin, even those that you despise, that utterly shock you and gross you out. Given the right circumstances, you would be capable of committing those sins. Because sin is not just a thing we do. And be sure you get this. Sin is not just a thing we do. Sin is a principle that lives in us. It's a nature. It's an instinct. It's a way of being that expresses itself in acts, in deeds. But those deeds are not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is the nature, the principle of sin that lives in us. And this is what this man didn't see. Because he never murdered anybody, he wasn't as bad as a murderer. Because he never committed adultery, he wasn't as bad as an adulterer. Because he never committed extortion, he wasn't as bad as those that committed extortion. And because, and you fill in what yours is, because you haven't done so and so, you're not as bad as those who have. I thank thee. Go on and say it with him. Pray with him if you want to. But I warn you, you'll be sorry. Go on and tell God. Stand up and say it. I thank you, Lord, I'm not as other men. The Lord Jesus says that's the wrong way to go. The Scriptures labor repeatedly 
to teach us that we are like other people. And that's where the problem is. It's not the world and the wicked society we live in and this and that. We're always looking and we're taught even to blame people and blame our heredity and blame our genes and blame the people who came before us and blame the level of this and that in the air. Everything gets to blame except where the Lord puts it. Last night we saw it in Jeremiah 17. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's a desperado, the heart. That's where the problem is. And when God deals with us to forgive us and to save us and to make us into righteous people, declared righteous by him, not self-fabricated righteousness. When God deals with us, he does it by starting with the root. He starts with the heart and comes out from there. And this is what this man didn't have. This man had the... The clothing of the Pharisee and the language of the Pharisee. But he didn't know himself. Cervantes. Those of us who speak Spanish, excuse me for saying his name that way. The correct way to say his name is Cervantes. But here we have to say San Mateo and San Ramon. and uh, It really upsets my tongue to have to speak that way sometimes. But anyway, Cervantes said, the knowledge of thyself will preserve thee from vanity. You got that? The knowledge of thyself will preserve thee from vanity. (laughs) This poor man, he didn't know himself. He didn't know himself. How we could wish that at that moment a light had come on in his mind and he had suddenly seen himself for what he really was and he could say, Lord, what a wicked heart I have. I have pride and self-importance and self-sufficiency. And, and I am I'm reluctant to admit that I could commit sins. And I think I'm better than people who have, who have done them and I haven't. How we could wish that suddenly a voice or a light or something. But you know, we wish the same thing for you tonight. You're just like us. None of us who are believers got into the family of God without finding out how rotten we were. You show me a person who says he's a Christian or an evangelical who doesn't ever remember coming to a place in his life where he was in a crisis, a personal, not a social, not a relational, none of that. A personal crisis about his own wickedness, a burden on his back. That he carried and he could not. You show me a person who says he's a Christian and he's never been through that and never been delivered from anything like that. And I show you a person who is self-deceived. Time to wake up. You see, the Lord gave this parable not because he wanted to hammer on the Pharisee and slam dunk him. That's not what he's trying to do here. He's trying to wake us up. He's showing us what the problem is, not by going into all the details about what the Pharisee was really like, but by contrasting him with the publican who had discovered what he was like. He said, here's two men. They're in the same place, the same time. They're praying to the same God. And one of them is going to find relief and forgiveness and salvation and a new life. He's going to go home justified. 
Now, this is not justified like we say, self-justification. You're just justifying yourself. We can't justify ourselves. Justification in the Bible is something that God does. It means to declare righteous. See, to declare righteous. And God declares righteous and makes righteous that way. The person who trusts in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. He does that. You can't earn it. You go to God, say, recognizing that you don't have it. When Jesus Christ died on the cross at Calvary, we, we said this last night, this verse, he says in First Peter, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, on the cross. He bore our sins there. I did the sinning, and Jesus did the dying. Now, if you're such a good person, then Jesus didn't die for you. You didn't need him to die for you. Christ died for sinners. He died for sinners. And some people go through all their life trying to avoid having to put that little sign on their shirt or blouse that says sinner. They don't ever want to be known, ever have to wear that little name tag. Hello, my name is Sinner. They don't ever want to be known or identified or marked as a sinner. It's like the scarlet letter, you know. They don't want it. And God is trying to say, but that's what you are. And those are the ones I died for. Those are the ones who have hope. Those are the ones who can be saved. While we were yet enemies, Romans says, Christ died for us. He didn't come to save righteous people, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, says the Lord. So we come to the contrast. And here it is. The publican. How different. The publican, we already talked about how they were, what they did, how corrupt they were, how hated they were by the Jews. Publicans didn't have very many friends. And they may not have had any friends except themselves. But he represents, this publican in these two verses, 13 and 14, represents people who realize that they have a problem and that they need help. Now look at, get this clear. When the publican came into the temple, he didn't come in complaining. They don't have, he's a man who doesn't have many friends. He didn't come in saying, Lord, you know, things are, I know I made my mistakes, but you know, nobody loves me. Nobody calls me. Nobody visits me. I always worry about people when they start talking, even Christians when they start talking this way. Me, me, uh, all the sentences are punctuated with me somewhere. Me and us, me and us. They don't see us and they don't visit us and they don't invite us and they don't call us and they don't this and they don't that. And everybody else doesn't do something and it always ends in me or us. So, whoa, 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 whoa. To a Christian, I would say, Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, that is to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Christian life is not about having people minister to you. The Christian life is ministering, serving, reaching out to others. And, uh, and in the Old Testament, we are told this. He that would have friends must 
show himself to be friendly. Amen. Doesn't cost any extra to smile. <laughs> you get the same price. But it does have some benefits. Reach out. But you see, uh, I'm going to leave that because that's a different lesson for another time. You want to come back to him. He's not complaining about Jewish society and about the hypocrites. I heard that one so many times. Oh, the hypocrites in the church. I'm not going there. The hypocrites and this and the hypocrites. That's a good thing they're not a soccer ball. They'd be kicked all the way to the other end of the field. The hypocrites and they're all. You know what? If you don't get saved, if you don't trust the Lord, if you don't repent of your sin and deal with your problem and find salvation, find forgiveness and eternal life, you're going to be with all those hypocrites for all eternity and you're not going to be able to get away from them. Because God has a place where you're going to send the hypocrites. The Lord talks about that in the Gospels. So I wouldn't waste too much time complaining about the hypocrites. I'd give my own life straightened out and let the Lord worry about them. See, Oh yeah, but they got in the church and ruined everything. Okay, alright, you're right. So, one time a man gave me a counterfeit piece of money. And so then I took all my money... And I threw it away. I don't want no more money because there's fake money running around in the world. See, I'm watching to see who's going to run up here to get that. Ado, you stay in your seat. (laughs) You've been a bad boy today. (laughs) What kind of an excuse is that? What, but what kind of a lame excuse? Just think about it for a minute. Would you throw away all your, would you refuse to use money anymore because there's counterfeit money? Would you refuse then to find salvation, the real thing in Christ? Real forgiveness and real eternal life because there's a few fakes running around out there? You're going to punish yourself because they're out there? You're going to keep yourself from finding forgiveness and eternal life because they don't have it? What's wrong with this picture? (laughs) So this is it. He doesn't come in that way. He's standing afar off. Now look at Here's body language for you. Are you all into that? Body language. Look at this. He didn't come strutting in and looking around with his head up in the air. It says, afar off. Verse 13. Standing afar off. Two. Would not lift up his eyes. You know that? He's looking down. Why is he looking down? He's ashamed. Or maybe he's afraid. And he's looking down. He he can't even look up. He came to the right place, but he just can't bring himself to lift up his head because he knows what he's like. So he's standing a long way off and it says he wouldn't look up. And then he's smiting on his chest. He's beating on his chest. He's saying what? God, this is a terrible world we live in today. Is that what he says? I don't know. We're not here to talk about the world. 
You just forget about that. Forget about the world's problems and all the corrupt politicians and all the terrible crimes that are being committed and this mafia and that mafia and all the uh, injustices of society. You just forget about all that. Because your problem that you need to solve is right in here. And you're carrying it around with you everywhere you go. Just like that person in Germany who took that, uh, opened a jar of Lumbeger cheese and smelled it and he got it in his mustache. He didn't know he had a little bit in his mustache and it really stinks. You think old socks smell bad. You haven't seen anything to you or smelled anything to you smell that. And all, he didn't know he had it in. And all day long he went around talking about how bad everybody smelled and how bad it smelled everywhere. When he got home at night he found out he had it right there. That nasty cheese right there. And that's what was doing it all, you see. You just forget about everybody else. You're carrying the problem around with you. And that's what's wrong. And that's, that is what poisons relationships and ruins marriages and families and friends and business associates. That's what ruins lives. Is this problem that you're carrying around, see. You can't solve the world's problems. But you can solve, God can solve, better said, the problem in your heart. He can take it out. He can deal with it. And it's not a process. He's not going to sign you up for therapy. And there's nothing to pay. No credit card necessary, as they say. There's nothing to pay. He does it. See? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But now I'm going to tell you something. That word, that indefinite article, a sinner, a sinner, in the original language of the New Testament is really a definite article. The sinner. The sinner. God be merciful to me, the sinner. He didn't figure there was a temple full of sinners. And he didn't say, Lord, please be merciful to me and help out that wicked Pharisee up there too. Hypocrite, he doesn't know who he is. He didn't even see the Pharisee. And I'll know, and everybody else will know, and it doesn't matter what I know, what everybody else knows, but I'm just saying it this way. I'll know when you mean business with God, when you stop talking about everybody else and using prayer to complain to God about everybody else and to congratulate yourself and you start looking for help from God. It's me, oh Lord. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me. It's me. Like that little boy. He didn't want to pray it. And his father made him pray it. And he said, teach me that I'm the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. You know, but that's what I pray. If you just learn that tonight, you are the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. And many of you have gone to see the passion. But you just think about this. Your sins, don't think everybody's sins, your sins are what put him there. And I can say that because I say that when I think about it. When everything that he suffered, it was my fault. I'm the sinner. Those were my sins. Everything that Romans 10 said, that's me. That's describing me. I remember when my grandfather got saved. He was a drinking, swearing station master. For the, I don't mean I, I wasn't there when he got saved, but I remember them telling me about it. For the Norfolk Southern Railroad, he worked. And uh, he didn't want to hear anything about 
Bible and salvation and all that. But my grandmother had gotten saved. But one thing she learned, First Peter 3 says, that they can win, the, the wife can win her unbelieving husband without a word by her life. By her godliness. And my grandmother stumbled on that. She first tried arguing with him because she, when she got saved, you know, listen to this, when she found the Lord and had, and was born again, she was already teaching Sunday school in a denominational church. I'm not going to say which one because it doesn't really matter. She was a Sunday school teacher and then she got saved. And she found out because she was studying Romans and she read that part in chapter three and she found out how bad off she was. And she cried out to the Lord to save her and to forgive her, to take her sin away and to, and to change her life. And then she started teaching that to the girls in her Sunday school class. And she got in trouble with the pastor. He said, now, Ms. Pittman, you're not teaching our material. They had a little quarterly. And she held up the Bible and she said, isn't this our material? Amen. And he said, I know what you mean, but you have to teach our material. Anyway, well, then she... Took the war into the home. Began to talk to my grandpa. He didn't want to hear, hear anything about it. And they had a couple of arguments about it. And he said and she said. And, and then she dropped it. She stumbled on the first Peter 3. And she said, I'm going to try that. <coughs> and she stopped arguing with him about anything. And she knew which shirts were his favorites. And she always had those clean and ironed and ready for him. And, and she fixed his favorite meals. And she tried to do everything the way he liked it. And she behaved on her best behavior with him all the time. You see, if a person really is saved, a woman, <coughs> a man, the person that you're married to is going to know it if you're really different. And they're going to know it if you play in with two decks of cards. You know that expression? That's a Spanish expression. Play with two decks of cards. It means you got one way of being in one situation and one way of being in the other situation. So ring, ring. Oh, hello, brother. How are you? I was just thinking about you. Praise the Lord. That's playing with two decks of cards. One kind of behavior in church. And the other kind of behavior in the home. And there are, are women who are saints in church and demons at home. And there are men who are that way, too. No, nah, I'm not getting on the women. I'm going to give it to the men, too. There are, and there are children, young people, who go off to the young people's meetings. And they're such wonderful Christians. And they get home and they give their parents, etc., and headache number, I don't know how many. Thank you. That's playing with two decks of cards. He said, he said, me, the sinner, that's me, Lord. I'm the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. This is what I wish for you. If you come to realize that tonight, tonight you can have eternal life. And right now, it's not a process, it's not a therapy. Bow your head right where you are and say, Lord, those verses describe me. I'm as bad as the publican, and until now I've been as deceived as the Pharisee. But it's me, Lord. I'm the one who needs to be saved. I'm the one you died for on the cross. It was my sins that put you there. Deliver me 
from myself. Deliver me from my sin. Deliver me from the mess that's in my heart. Only you can take it and straighten it out. You see, this is what he did. He knew he had a problem. God, be merciful to me. And that word merciful uh, is the same word that you have for the mercy seat, propitious. Now, there's a nice old word that nobody knows what it means anymore, propitious. Uh, the propitiatory, the, the seat, the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place in the tabernacle and later in the temple where they went in once a year and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices before the Lord and it fell on that. And the Lord forgave his people. He was merciful to his people because of the blood of those sacrifices taken in on the Day of Atonement. He said, Lord, be propitious to me. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm coming to that place where the blood has been sprinkled. I'm coming to that mercy seat. And that's what you need to do. Calvary is God's mercy seat. That's where the blood of the lamb was sprinkled. It was spilt and sprinkled there. And you come there and you say, Lord, I'm the sinner. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm just like everybody else. I need to be saved just like everybody else. Help me, Lord. Be merciful to me. You see. Now Jesus interrupts in verse 14. Jesus interrupts. We've heard one pray and we've heard the other pray. And Jesus, who is God and who knows the content and the result of all prayers, he analyzes those prayers. See? And he tells us, I tell you, the Lord says, I tell you. He says, take it from me. God the Son, he says, I'm telling you how those prayers turned out. He says, this man... The one who humbled himself. This man went down to his house justified. God declared him righteous because he trusted in God for mercy. He went to the mercy seat. That place where blood was sprinkled for him. Where some life was given for him. And he said, I'm trusting the Lord. He said, be merciful to me. And the Lord says, he went to his house justified rather than or instead of the other. For everyone, not most people, but everyone who exalts himself... Everyone who has a good or a pretty good or a high opinion of himself. Everyone who does that, he says, will be abased. The only way up in the kingdom of God is down. And the harder you try to lift yourself up and be better, the worse, the further down you're going and the worse off you're getting. You humble yourself, he says. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. It's necessary in salvation. It's, it's a necessary Ingredient of true biblical Christianity. Nobody becomes a Christian. Nobody becomes a true believer who who hasn't gone through this humbling experience of realizing, I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. Is there anybody here like that tonight that you can say, I'm the sinner. I'm through talking about how good I am and how I'm not as bad as others. I'm the sinner. That Jesus died for. It's me Lord. Not the others. Not the world. I'm I'm no longer going to come into your presence. To complain and to criticize. I need help. I need to be forgiven. I need mercy. 
Don't give me what I deserve, Lord. Give me mercy. See? That's the answer. And the Pharisee, when he went home, he was just like he was when he went to the temple. And it scares me, and it ought to scare you to think that you could walk out and go home tonight and lay down in your bed and be just like you were before. And what happens if you die during your sleep tonight? The book of Job says, God in whose hand is the breath of all living things. And every time you take a breath, God takes that breath and hands it to you so you can breathe it. God in whose hand is the breath of all living. He hands you that breath and all God has to do, He doesn't have to send a, an earthquake. He doesn't have to send a heart attack. He doesn't have to make a meteorite fall on the earth. All God has to do is close His hand and hold back one of those breaths. That's what a slender thread your life is on. That's all he has to do. And go home, just like you came, and lie down in that bed with that slender thread. And what happens if it breaks during the night? You can go home justified because it's not a process. I can't do it, and the church can't do it. God can do it. And all he needs in order to do it is for you to pray like this man in verse 13, to take his position, to recognize your condition, and to call upon him to have that mercy that he made available to you when Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. And that's what I pray that you'll do. If you want God's help, forget everything else and everybody else. Forget what's wrong in your relationship with other people and how that's all going to be worked out. And you think about what's wrong in your own heart and get that straight first. Start with the cause. Start with the root of the problem, and God will help you to go on from there. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. I thank you for teaching me that, and I'm still that way. I found it out, Lord, in 1975, and I still know it tonight. It's me, Lord. I know how we pray for our friends and relatives, for people that we know and love, and we agonize for them because they have such difficulty coming to this point. And no good can come of it. No good can come of their lives until they change. Lord, we pray you would help them to see it. Through the eyes of, of, of these men, this Pharisee and, and this publican, help them to see and help them to choose to be like the one who humbled himself and sought mercy. We thank you that you are a merciful God. God is good all the time. And he's the only one. You are the only one, Lord. None of us are that way. There's none righteous, no, not one. But you're good. And you are so good that you are willing to forgive anyone here tonight of anything if they will just come to you. Nothing too hard for you. We thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would work for the salvation of souls tonight. That tonight would be the night, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.